Hello, hello. My name is Keisha Chung. And my name is Muna Traore, and welcome to the Collective Culture Creative Conversations podcast. Where we chat with different BIPOC creatives and community leaders we love and admire. Hello, hello. Hi, everybody. And welcome to another edition of the Collective Culture Podcast. Yes, where we chat with different BIPOC creatives we love and admire. Muna, how are you doing? You know, I'm a big mess. I know I Uh sound cheerful and lovely and whatever, whatever, but (laughs) my life is a shitstorm dumpster fire with a raccoon in it. I'm sorry to hear that. It's okay. I'm not going to get into the details of any of it, but... um, Uh, My mental health has been dubious. I've been crying a lot. I have two appointments with my therapist this week, and I am just trying to keep my head above water. What are you doing to try and find some peace right now? I'm eating whatever I want. (laughs) Is there any particular snacks you're enjoying more than others right now? Like anything Um, that's really tickling your fancy? I'm really loving Jamaican food. So oh, I saw in your story, you found a nice spot that looked, <laughs> you're funny, man. Well, I've been ordering from the same place and I've been ordering yeah. the same fish yeah. over and over again. Actually, no, I ordered the shrimp the other day, but, um, I was like, let me mission to this other Jamaican spot. And it's in this really dodgy strip club. She uses the kitchen in the strip club uh-huh. and it literally was, I think the best oxtail I've ever had. Really? Like not even lying. In Winnipeg. Okay, in Winnipeg. No, no, no. I'm saying the best oxtail oh. I've ever had. Have you ever been to Jamaica? Be in Winnipeg. Have you ever been to Jamaica? I have not. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. That's cool. Then then I'll 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 allow it. We will allow it. But it tasted um, very authentic. It wasn't like good. I was eating some bland, you know, Winnipeg basic Jamaican food. It's like, <laughs> no, she cooks for Jamaicans. That's yeah, who she that's cooks fair. for. Are there a lot of Jamaicans out there? Or There's a lot. A lot. There's yeah. a lot of Jamaican food and a lot of Nigerian food and a lot oh, of fun. Jamaican and Nigerian people. I've never had Nigerian food before. What is it? Like just there's a lot of meat and rice? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of okay with that. I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, that's what I grew up on. So any kind of yeah, meat and rice, I'm good. I love rice. I like out. Anyways, I could go on a little food tangent, but I won't. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you're finding ways to make yourself feel better and to find some peace and some, I guess, some sort of healing. Yeah. That makes me happy that you're finding that. How are um, you, Keisha? Let's check in with you. What's what's oh, up with you? Girl, you I am. Good. Oh, thank you. I am busy, man. Like, I love my job so much. Um, I'm having a really good time. I'm learning so much. But it's like, I think I might have said this last month. I don't remember. But it's like, I'm constantly tired, but I kind of wouldn't have it any other way because I'm doing something I absolutely love. And I'm still adjusting, like my body's adjusting and I'm trying to find like sleep when I can. But it's like, you know, when you've worked, you've done something for so long and then you finally feel like the fruits of your labor are are growing and coming to fruition. That's how it feels right now, you know, and it's it's a little bit overwhelming, but I'm just so proud of where I am in my life and of the people that I have around me and I'm just so grateful for all my friends and the work I'm doing and the love in my life and you know where I'm at right now I just wow it feels great so I know the audience can't see it but 
She's glowing. <laughs> she is glowing. Shut up. Shut up. Got a good job. Got a good dick. Got good friends. Everything's, everything's just coming up roses. Yeah, well, I don't know. It's good. It's good, though. But I do need to, I need to start exercising again. Like, I kind of haven't had as much time to do that. So I've been trying to find moments for that. But Girl, you look hard. that good and you don't exercise? Wow. <laughs> Imagine. Stop it. <laughs> What are you reading, watching, listening to? What is feeding you, Muna? I'm not reading much, but I've been watching. Um, I just binge watched The Matrix. Okay, fun. So I watched The Matrix, The Matrix Revolutions, and the, or no, The Matrix Reloaded, and then The Matrix Revolutions, and that's actually been really inspiring. I've I've really enjoyed it. Um, mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it in such a long time, and revisiting it made me think about simulation theory a lot, made me mm-hmm. think about the kind of person I would be if I had the option. Would I take the red pill or would I take the blue pill? I think I would take the red pill, even though it would be brutal mm-hmm. and raggedy, live in like a tunnel for the rest of my life. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, to be able to go into the matrix, matrix and fuck shit up, I think would be dope. And I think... I'd want to know the truth. And I, I am thinking about all the areas of my life where maybe I've bought into an idea or a narrative that hasn't served me. And what would happen if I lifted the veil and really looked at the truth? And um, I don't know. It's sort of like percolating in my mind and taking me in different directions that um, I obviously missed when I was a kid when I first saw these films I honestly you know I admitted this in our interview which we will introduce in a moment but I have never watched them all what do you mean them all you've never watched them watch any, I, I was look at her trying to lie look at her trying to lie no I was about to say well any of them I'm gonna be specific so I wish I could engage but you know what like I I have another friend who like said that we I would be disowned if I didn't watch them soon. So I'm going to make it a priority. And then you know what? Maybe next time I can speak with you about it because I would wish I could contribute more. <laughs> you should Girl, see her I'm face. good. I don't, need to, I don't need her to eyes speak. at me. I don't I need to trying. speak with you about it. You can take your blue pill and go live your life. I'm over <gasps> you here in the what? red. I feel like I'm being insulted and I haven't even seen the movie. Because... <laughs> Well, I will. I'm going to watch it. I don't care if I don't. I'll talk to like someone else about it. Okay. How about that? Okay. I'm stuck. All right. Um, um, yeah. So that's, that's what you're, you're, that's been your media culture, pulp culture ingesting has been the matrix. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. I'm trying to think of anything else that I've watched. Still watching teen mom too. Um, and you know, I've been watching like Family Guy here and there, just Fun. to give myself some filler. But okay. life has been pretty basic. All right. Okay. Yeah. What about you? What are you watching? What's feeding you? Um, I binged Lupin. So oh, yeah, we talked yeah. about this, right? Yeah, we did talk about Lupin. 
Yeah. Well, well, no, you brought, you told me last month to what that you watched it and I said I would. And then now I did. And Omar Sai. Bro. Oh, bro. Baby daddy to end all baby daddies. Happily, sir. You're fine. You are fine. The lips. It's it's everything. But I want to say this. Okay. Like, you know, show is super entertaining. But like so implausible. Like completely, completely. But we're not watching it so for that. We're not implausible. watching it for that. This guy puts on a disguise and he puts on fake teeth and a mustache. Yo, Bro. he gets his he gets his disguise as a dollarama. Trust. <laughs> he does. But then he has a whole like big ass closet with like all those disguising. Sir, when are you using these things? You look like you all the time. The, the end scene. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> like with the, with the with the dread hat and beard attached as one, he pulls it off in one piece. I'm like, man, like no, man, you look like you, anyways. But like, you but, know um, what? Let let me just enjoy the show. Let me just have I'm it. Me too. <laughs> and and they're doing a third. We're getting a third series. Like I'm here for it. I yes. I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm happy that I watched it. It's like light but still entertaining. And like when I really want to pay attention, like when I'm not doing something else, I'll watch it in French, which I love more. Like just getting. Wait, you listen to the dub? Yeah. Well, sometimes I can't no. always. I can't read. Like I don't have the time. I can't. I want to watch it, but I can't focus on reading the subtitles. So I own, I'll like, I, do both. I don't think I could watch it with it dubbed over. I think it would make me so furious because if the voice, the spirit of the voice didn't match, <laughs> throw the whole show away. Yeah, but I got to a point where I was just like really invested and I didn't want to stop watching it, but I had to do something. So I was like, okay, let me just like switch it. And that kind of got used to it. So I just like would go back and forth. Anyways, thank you for the recommendation. Really enjoying it. Um, <laughs> other than that, I've been watching a lot of sports for work and I'm a soccer fan, guys. Hey, look who at plays me. soccer? Name one sexy man who plays soccer, and maybe I know it. Sexy man, because um, I only follow the men. I don't sport. actually follow the sport. I don't find like I find some soccer players attractive, but they're just very they're small. Are they? Tall. Yeah, they're not the biggest. Like they're not. They have really nice bodies. Like they're very toned physically, but I'm not like super, you know. Um, and they're also really young. You know, are like, they? Are they, they? It feels a little creepy because some of them are like babies. Like they're. Like, I feel like basketball really players are like really young, but they look old because they be pushing. They look so old. Also, uh, okay, you don't watch basketball. Well, I was gonna. I've been so I've been watching sports. Really, is what I've been watching. I watched the Euro Cup, which was so much fun, and I was betting on England, and I watched it with an Italian person and was made fun of profusely because I picked the losing team, but like. Also, it was interesting because with sports, like somebody was kind of coming new into it. I don't know if you heard kind of all of the um, issues that happened around the three young black players who. Oh, yeah. English people a, being racist. La, la, la. So racist. And like kind of, I guess with my job, I'm, I have to understand sports culture more. Right. So it's been interesting to have this lens of like looking at, you know, racism and the dynamics in sport that are just. They, they translate into how racism and oppression operates within this space. Cause I've never really been a part of the culture, like even who owns the teams and who's playing. And the, there's just like so many weird dynamics that I'm kind of clocking with it. But overall, like I've been really enjoying getting into sports and I watched um, the NBA playoffs uh, by the time this comes out, like it's kind of old news, but you know, the Bucks won and that was interesting to watch. So when it's like, I don't like, at all. <laughs> um, but, the only sport I watch is man. 
<laughs> well, then watch it for. Ba- do you remember when the Raptors? <laughs> no, no. Do you remember when the Raptors were playing and I brought you to the. And I saw Ibaka in? on the screen and, and I was like, She's like, oh, Ibaka, who is that? He is. Boing. And I was there watching every game after. You were, you were, because he. Yeah, I was watching it for him too, girl. Basketball is better for that. Like soccer, you don't get as much of the the fine men. But you know, you, know you, have a, you know who my fave is. I've never seen him play a game or anything. <laughs> Anthony Joshua, the boxer. I know he. he girl, girl. Oh, I'll do a oh. round with him. <laughs> <laughs> And Muna hates running, by the way. <laughs> no, I said a round, a round. Oh, I thought you said a run. Oh, a run? Hell no. Oh, <laughs> the only running I am doing is in his arms to his bed. Yeah, he's fine. He's fine. He's a he's a boxer. For those who don't know, you should you should Google him and you'll, fine with your eyes will be happy. F. Yeah, your eyes will be happy about that. But um, yes, yeah, so that's kind of what I've been I've been watching, and then obviously reading, uh, Doctor Bailey's book, um, and. Yeah, I don't think there's much else. I've just been having a blast with sports, and I haven't had time to catch up on other TV shows I've been wanting to watch, so my list is kind of growing. But Lupin was great. So, again, thank you, darling. Well, um, hopefully next check-in, you will have watched all of The Matrixes. Otherwise, I quit. Okay, but also, what do you have to watch? Like, how come I always get things? Um, I probably have to watch um, anime or something. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I have to catch up on my anime, but have you seen The Good Place? Have you watched all of The Good Place? I haven't watched all of it. I've okay, seen... that's what you have to finish. You have you have to finish it next time you talk. Girl, who has the time? You're telling me this? You No, know, if you have time to... No, you're going to watch it. If I'm going to watch The Matrix, you have a month. You have a month. Okay. I will do it. I will watch okay. The Good Place. Great. Wonderful. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, let's intro our lovely guest. I am like... Guys, I'm so excited for this guest, for this interview. I've been geeking for like the past few months with this news that we're going to be doing this interview. And I'm, I'm so surprised excited. that we pulled it off. I, Girl, I like, I am just over the moon about this. Um, so our guest for this lovely, I'm going to call this like the five-year anniversary edition of this episode because it's five years of collective culture this month. And this is our, what episode is this guy? Seven? Episode seven? Yeah, it doesn't align, but this is going to be our anniversary edition episode. So for this episode, we have the amazing, talented, wonderful Dr. Moya Bailey. Woo! Um, we had an audience be so Okay, so for those who do not know, Dr. Moya Bailey is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. Her work focuses on Black women's use of digital media to promote social justice as acts of self-affirmation and health promotion. She is interested in how race, gender, and sexuality are represented in media and medicine. She currently curates the Transform DH Tumblr Initiative in Digital Humanities. She is a graduate of the Emory University Women's Gender and and Sexuality Studies Department. She is the founder and co-conspirator of Quirky Black Girls, a network for strange and different black girls, and now serves as the digital alchemist for Octavia E. Butler's Legacy Network. Dr. Moya Bailey coined the term massage noir, defining it as the ways anti-Black and misogynistic representation shape broader ideas about Black women, particularly in visual culture and digital spaces. The term has gone viral, touching a cultural nerve, and has quickly entered into the lexicon. 
uh, Massage Noir now has its own Wikipedia page and hashtag and has been featured on Comedy Central's The Daily Show and CNN's Cuomo Primetime. In her new book, Massage Noir Transformed, Bailey delves into her groundbreaking concept highlighting Black women's digital resistance to anti-Black misogyny on YouTube, Facebook, Tumblr, and other platforms. Yay! So we are so excited, and um, if you haven't gotten her book, purchase it. You can still listen to the interview and get some context for this, but it's a really great read. So much information, and this conversation we are so excited to present to you guys. Um, So... Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, hello, everyone. Um, Thank you so much for joining us again for this lovely episode. We introduced our amazing guest we have today, Dr. Moya Bailey. And uh, Moya, thank you so much for coming on this episode with us today. We're so excited. We like... We were we sent that email and then when we got a reply we're like wait what <laughs> what so we're just so thrilled to have you on the show thank you for taking the time we really appreciate it oh thank you so much for having me this is actually you know the best part is getting to talk to people who are interested in the book or interested in the concept so I'm happy to be here yay um, so for our audiences that are not familiar with your work who are you and what do you do. I am Moya Bailey, and I am an associate professor at Northwestern University in the School of Communication. And that's like brand new since July. And I would say I think of myself as somebody who is concerned about Black women's liberation, the freedom of Black people particularly queer and trans Black people. And my research is about figuring out how we get there. Amazing. Amazing. I love that. Um, So in terms of, you know, this book, I think um, there was a lot of emphasis on language. And I know that, like, once a word enters into mainstream spaces, the definition and the essence of words tend to morph. So with the word massage noir, did you experience that with this word at all? And did that inspire or contribute at all to writing this book? It most certainly did. I would say that massage noir transformed came out of wanting to make sure people understood that massage noir was about anti-black racist misogyny and not just general racist misogyny that it very much is about what happens when people are read as Black women and how they're treated and represented as a result of that. So I felt it was important to write the book because I'd seen people using misogynoir when talking about other women of color, or I'd seen people trying to use misogynoir to talk about a very limited understanding of who Black women are. So it became important for me to write the book to challenge that perception and really get people to think differently about who they imagine as being susceptible to these negative represent- representations and portrayals. 
Um, I was wondering if quickly you could give a definition for our audience members who may not be familiar with the term or are or have a limited understanding of it. Yeah. So in addition to describing misogynoir as the anti-Black racist misogyny that Black women and people read as Black women experience, I also describe misogynoir as the negative representations of Black women that circulate in visual and digital culture. So all of the ways that Black women are represented narratively or in visual images that then shape how they're treated in society and how people read as Black women are treated in society. And um, going back to the specificity of who that term applies to, I wanted to bring up the fact that you make a point of being very inclusive in your language throughout the book. And I was wondering if you could talk about why you wanted to center Black, queer, gender non-conforming, conforming non-binary folks in your work. Yeah, it became important for me to think about who really experiences misogynoir and also who's doing a lot of the work to combat it, who has the most to gain by misogynoir being eliminated. And I found that a lot of the people who are doing the lion's share of the work in combating misogynoir were queer and trans Black women. And in the digital platforms that I was looking at, I saw them making a real case for how misogynoir harms everyone and thinking through the actions and the kind of political commitments that these communities have that inevitably mean that they're thinking about everyone in our community. So it's not just about uh, their identities being particularly targeted. It's also about the expansive way that their activism actually includes people beyond themselves and then opens up conversations that I think otherwise don't happen or don't happen in the same way. Mm -hmm. In the book, you say, when you read the term Black feminists, do not assume that it is interchangeable with Black women. Not all Black women are feminists, and not all Black feminists are women. So I'm, I'm curious about how you cope with misogynoir from Black women, queer, gender nonconforming, non-binary, non-binary, gender variant folk, um, even if you don't identify with them as part of your immediate community, how do you do you process that differently? And I'm thinking um, specifically about when you talked about your experience at Spelman with the Nelly situation, mm-hmm. um, and you discussed how you know there were students who were quite upset with the fact that you know they because they wanted Nelly to be there and they wanted to meet him. Um, How did you experience that? And how do you look back on that now? Yeah, I mean, the real thing that is hard for, I think, a lot of us to understand, given how we've learned about oppression or how we've learned about harm, is that there's an assumption 
that if you have been harmed or are currently being harmed, that you can't also cause harm and that you can't also be somebody who does that to other people. And I would say the Spellman situation was a real lesson in how, you know, there are members of our community, people who we care about, who care about us, have different values and different perspectives and can actually enable some of the things that we might have questions about. So I definitely feel as though there is internalized misogynoir that is possible, just as there's internalized ableism and other forms of oppression, that that isn't surprising given the world we live in. We are definitely subject to the harmful and oppressive forces that affect us and then sometimes find ways to enact that on other people. So trying to hold that with some grace and some understanding that people who are harmed can also be instigators of harm themselves. And that has given me, I think, a little bit more uh, grace when it comes to other members of society who are doing that as well. Which isn't mm-hmm. to say that that, of course, excuses the behavior or makes it okay, but it's just another level of understanding and why it's so insidious and hard to get rid of. Because if you can't really convince the people who are most impacted by a situation that they are somehow enabling or still using misogynoir in their own lives, then of course it's going to be that much harder to convince someone with relatively more privilege that they're also part of the problem as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you um, articulate that journey and that process of understanding because I, I even remember when I um, majored in women's studies and I started learning about oppression and racism and it almost becomes something you can't unsee, you know, and then sometimes you'll come into these moments where you'll try and talk to people about it and you'll try and expand their worldview on something. And you realize that once you kind of say one thing, it can be sort of a Pandora's box and it changes people's perceptions of themselves. It forces them to look inward and realize that their worldview might be corrupted by all these different systems. And it can be very overwhelming and I just, I like that you articulated that notion of understanding, you know what I mean? Because I think it's something that really comes with the process of learning that even if you understand, you know, these systems of domination and oppression, sometimes you have to let people come to that realization on their own because it can be so overwhelming. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I appreciate you using the language of process and that, you know, we're all on our own timeline with this. You know, I can remember back to being young and thinking, you know, not too terrible thoughts, but being very clear that, you know, when I think about sexuality or when I think about homosexuality, as it was, you know, called when I was coming up, that it must be biological because why would anybody choose to live that way? And having a very different understanding of how I think about queerness now and not actually being invested at all in terms of how people understand their sexuality as either biological or or not that 
Um, you know, there are investments that we have, narratives that we have about how the world works that when you live long enough and you experience more things, you can obviously have a greater and expanded understanding of what humans do. And not everybody comes to things at the same time. So it's been really important for me to be mindful that I was not always aware of the things that I am aware of now and that I'm still learning and growing and and that's what other people are doing as well. As you speak, I can feel myself trying to absorb your piece because (laughs) (laughs) unfortunately I am much more easily agitated and um, uh, I can't recall uh, which interview it was, but I, I remember you making a statement about how, um, you know, el- there are elder trans people who use different language to refer to themselves and members of their community and how we have to afford grace for um, the different the different perspectives and stages that our community members might be in. Yes. Um, Yes, no, it's true. I mean, I I can remember being uh, similarly agitated, you know, (laughs) as a college student and maybe being very dismissive of my lesbian elders who use the term lesbian and being very much like, I am queer. I don't use that lesbian. Like, that's old. And now being older myself and being like, wow, that was really rude. (laughs) (laughs) like not uh really in line with like lesbian as a term like that's what they came to and that really meant something and it had a different weight to it to the point where lesbian was also used to describe you know straight women who were women identified women who very much were outside of the box of heteronormativity, even if they partnered with men, that that, there was a moment where that was happening. And to just collapse and dismiss the language that has come before us, I think is a real disservice and doesn't give honor to the legacy that I feel like queerness is a part of, which includes lesbian, which includes, you know, older trans folks who still call themselves you know, transsexual, or you still use the term transvestite, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I love the way that you articulated that it's a part of the legacy of, of queerness. And I think, you know, something like, like this book and the work that you do, it's a part of such an important legacy as well. And I think what was very um, insightful for me was when I was reading especially about your interactions with Tumblr, because for me, I'm a bit younger. So I, I kind of, I didn't get to experience it. I feel like the way that you describe it in your book, it wasn't as transformative for me. Um, and something that I learned that I really didn't know was that when you mentioned that queer and trans people of color were in large part responsible for bringing trigger warnings and content warnings to mainstream um, consciousness, but also the practice of the call out and calling in. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And I thought that was, you know, very interesting because of what you think about when you think about what calling out represents now and kind of like cancel culture and how those two things mesh together. 
um, I feel like it's very different from what you described in your book, you know, kind of how it manifests now. So I'm curious, what do you think about the way the practice of calling out has evolved and how it's related to cancel culture presently? Oh, such a good question. You know, something I've been thinking about is that I couldn't have written this book now, which is wild because I only really started working on it in earnest, you know, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago. And the time period is maybe just a few years older than that. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about in less than 10 years, things have shifted so much in terms of how people use social media and the kinds of interactions that people have. I have a good friend who is a fellow Tumblr blogger, uh, elder, (laughs) uh, who talked about those early days of blogger and live journal as, as pen pal relationships that we were writing to our friends, and then uh, Mariam Kaba made me think about the language of followers and how that's a very different way of engaging with the people that you know online. That mm-hmm. we came from an era of social media interaction where you knew pretty much everybody that was on your feed, and that's not the case anymore. You know, when I first used Facebook, it was in the time where only college students had Facebook. Your particular school had to petition to get access to Facebook. And so it was generally the people from your school that you knew and people from other schools that you then had access to. Mm -hmm. So the shift in how that platform has evolved in the sheer volume of people who participate, I think has really changed how what's possible with cancel culture, the kinds of conversations people can have on these platforms mm. and people's general feeling about what's happening on these platforms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it is, I find it very counterproductive, the notion of cancel culture personally, like, And I think I also liked when you spoke about that in your book, um, which we'll get to in a minute, when you were speaking um, with Danielle Cole about the different types of social media, uh, social media platforms she likes. Um, But I find cancel culture, it just, it's very, it doesn't allow for anything transformative because it's almost like we're saying to people, hey, you said something wrong. We're going to go put you in that corner now. Don't interact with anybody. It's not, it's not restorative or circular. It's only, it only moves in one direction. Yeah. Absolutely. And so the one thing that you did becomes who you are. And again, I think that's one of the one of the challenges of this moment is that politics have become identity. And I've heard Barbara Smith say it in a different way is that people took the identity without the politics, that we are too invested in labeling someone as a thing as opposed to participating in a conversation with a person, uh, somebody who is perhaps behaving in ways that we don't like, but that's a conversation to be had if, of course, you understand that person as not disposable. Mm-hmm. And so the the tricky thing about cancel culture for me is that 
sometimes it gets used and it's not accurate. So when people talk about celebrities being canceled, you know, it's not as if they don't still get deals. It's not as if that they, they don't have money or still have fans and still have access to all the things they need to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it's a very different thing when you are somebody who isn't a celebrity who's trying to connect to a community and somehow you've been shut out and really um, ostracized from the group that you might have been connected to. Mm-hmm. And of course, as also Danielle Cole mentions in the book, perhaps there's a time where that's necessary, where you've done something so egregious that you do yeah. need a timeout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there yeah. is there is the understanding that you can come back. And I definitely feel like that has a lot to do with how we're thinking about transformative justice, mm-hmm. how we're trying to reimagine the way we relate to each other so that it isn't such a disposable interaction and transactional relationship that we have with each other, that we're in it for the long haul, which means people are going to grow and learn and we have to make room for that. Yeah. Yeah. It it kind of goes back to um, the importance of process Um, because I feel like right now we see a lot of people who are retroactively being canceled. Yes. And we lose everything that that person has learned and could potentially contribute um, as a result of whatever happened between the time they made a statement or behaved a certain way to where they are now. Yes. Mm -hmm. And of course, it also doesn't really help Uh, people want to be involved in transformative justice if they feel like they're going to be punished for it. You know, it's, it's one of those things where if accountability, which is already difficult and hard to do, and it's really brave, I think, for people to say, I, I messed up. I really want to own what it is that I've done wrong. Uh, And then to be met with, a situation where it seems impossible for them to move out of that space. I, I don't know that that's getting us closer to the world that we want. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I completely agree as well. Were you going to say something? Well, I was going to say, you know, I, I do think that there are people who want to take accountability, which is again, super rare. And then there are people who don't. And, and that's also a choice that people are making. And those are the kinds of people who I feel like, that's when we say we don't have the energy. You know, if you're not open to accountability, then your time here in this space is has ended. But mm-hmm. that to me is very different from what I see happening in this current moment. Yeah. And I feel like you kind of answered my next question, but I know that, you know, we're clearly talking about how calling out and cancel culture is far more popular than the notion of calling in. And it's interesting that as you articulated, these two concepts and these two practices were almost created and popularized in in tandem with one another. So do you think it's possible for us to create a space that exists presently for people to employ a framework for calling in more? I do. I have questions about how that can be done on the social media platforms we have now as Mm -hmm. they are structured now. So I do think that there was a moment, and 
again, we mentioned the part where I interviewed Danielle Cole, a Tumblr user who talks about her own experience of calling, of being called in mm -hmm. around their lack of understanding in relationship to colorism. Mm -hmm. And so Danielle is talking to other black, non-binary, femme, women, other gender expansive black people who are saying, hey, your read of colorism is off and you actually should read some more things. Mm -hmm. And people were willing to do that because of the relationship and rapport that they had built on mm -hmm. Tumblr. And it's that thing of, you know, people not wanting the people that they care about, people who have a particular analysis or a perspective that is valuable in other areas to be essentially slipping uh, on an area where they perhaps need some more education. And that to me is a beautiful example of how calling yeah. in can work, but it was built on relationship. Mm. And I think now when we're in a moment where people can have thousands of followers and they don't know those people, it's a very different way of interacting and it does not lend itself to people providing that sense of let me actually tell you something let's try to engage each other as if we're people yeah. I wow. feel like it it sort of mirrors the way that that kind of um, interaction would happen in real life because it requires a certain amount of int intimacy to take someone aside and have a dialogue with them about where maybe they're falling short or where maybe where they need to do more work. And on many of these platforms, it's easy to, to um, disconnect in that way from the people you engage with. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I so appreciate your use of the word intimacy because that was possible in that brief moment that I was talking about in the book, where I do think we were able to create intimate space on social media. There was a time, which I remember, when people would meet their Tumblr friends after years and meet in real life fall in love, you know, <laughs> be besties mm -hmm. after just being online, knowing each other mostly through the internet. I think that's much harder to do now. But the thing that made that possible is, I think, the intimacy that those spaces afforded at that time because they weren't so huge and it wasn't just uh, the, the kinds of interactions themselves lended towards a more intimate exchange. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that you said that it was, you know, these, these interactions were built on relationships and that's not really possible now. And to your earlier points, as you've been saying about having followers that are, you don't know them, you know, and even on, it's funny because even on Facebook, I remember when people would add me 
on it. And if I didn't know them, I'd be like, oh, I don't know you. I'm not going to add you now. And then sometimes I randomly will check it and I'll see random people adding me that I've never met. And I'm like, huh, it's weird that this feels weird on this platform, but that's just how it kind of was created. You know what I mean? So it's a very important element of the way these platforms are structured in terms of the kind of interactions that we can have. So I love the way you articulated that. Um, And to kind of go back to Cole, that conversation with Cole, um, you asked Cole what their ideal social media platform might look like. So I want to know what yours would look like. Such a good question. I mean, there'd be, there's a lot of similarities. So one of the, one of the things I really love about Danielle's answer is that they offer a plan for a platform where the users and the creators are in conversation about how the platform is designed. I love that so much. I just want to interject because that when I, when we were discussing this earlier and I was trying to, I was trying to see like whether or not it was viable, like, is it viable for us to, to move to another platform or create our own platform? And it only works. I think if, capitalist interest is examined yes and how it affects the 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 boundaries and the limitations that are inevitably going to be part of the 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 platform absolutely absolutely but, but and continue and, continue continue sorry no, no, really no. Excited. no but that of course leads to the question of what is possible with a social media platform, given the ways that capitalism so much shapes the design and the impetus for these apps being created. So Mm -hmm. I would say that, again, part of our goal or part of what we hope for the world that we want are platforms that maybe don't have a, a really wide range and have the same capitalistic intent that guides the construction in a way that makes them really difficult to maintain the intimacy that was possible when there weren't a lot of people on these sites or the kinds of people who are on that site were curated. You know, at this point, Facebook, Twitter, are so deeply integrated into our everyday that it becomes really hard to imagine what our lives would be like without it. And to that point, it's, it's not intimate anymore. It's ubiquitous. And that I think calls for us to think about something that exists in a different way. So One thing that I'm doing is I'm going to be teaching a class in the winter quarter at Northwestern called, Can We Create an Ethical Internet? And (laughs) 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 well, I mean, I think parts of it I'm definitely going to make public. So definitely check back and the syllabus, of course, will be public. But in thinking about what that could look like, one of the things I was thinking was that I want an internet that has quiet hours and sleep time (laughs) where 
you know, we're not using, we're not using the internet. And I, but who imposes that? Who? Yeah. So that would be like, the, and is that ethical? Right. So my thought is that for the people who use this particular internet network, uh, we, we decide together what the hours are, uh, and then we shut it down. And then uh, the next day, whenever our start time is, we, we turn it back on and have access again. Part of the idea of shutting it down at night is also thinking about just the way that right now there's so much light pollution and there's so much electronic and digital disturbance for the flora and fauna of our world that, you know, maybe the internet should take a break too when we do Mm. and trying to get back to a more natural rhythm in our understanding of pace. Mm. So that's one of the things I've been thinking about recently. Mm. So something like that would be implemented into this social, your ideal social yeah, media platform. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, okay. Do you have anything else you'd add to that platform? Yeah, I mean, maybe some ideas about how people can do things in tandem with the digital. There is a way that our current world, and people do this already, but the, you know, the apps are designed to keep you invested and keep you refreshing. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd want to create something that encouraged people to disassociate with the app and get out, get mm-hmm. outside of the app. Maybe similar to what's the what's the dating one that's like the last dating app you'll use or like. We're trying to help you match so that you hinge, delete, hinge. I think delete Anna, the app. Oh, okay. Hinge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that, so something like that, that is encouraging people to, you know, you use this, but it's only one tool in the toolbox. It's mm-hmm. not everything. Mm-hmm. Love this. Oh, my imagination is running wild. <laughs> All right. I have to get to do this one day. I think like even when I was reading that section of the book, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is such a good idea. I hope this exists at some point. Um, yeah. So lots to think about with that one. As we as we talk about the constraints and limitations of our current social media landscape and the platforms that we use, I guess I'm really curious about the concept of digital alchemy and what you think the next iteration of it will be um, in terms of how the how what happens in the digital space will continue to affect um, our real life and create real life consequences. Um, if you could expand on that and maybe discuss TikTok. Yes, well, that's exactly where I was going. You totally intuited that. Uh, I definitely feel like digital alchemy, as I understand it and describe it, is the way that people use the platforms that exist to create something far beyond what the creators of the platform intended. So I think of it as the 
social justice, social media magic that Black creators uh, employ using these platforms. And when you mentioned TikTok, I got excited because I do think that that's one of the areas where I see digital alchemy enacted, particularly with the recent protest of Mm -hmm. Black TikTokers who decided they're not creating these dance crazes anymore that then get appropriated by white dancers and then get popularized by those white dancers. So I see that as that TikTok Black dance strike as a real example of digital alchemy in action and people taking uh, their work and saying, no, we won't be exploited in this way. And I, I am also thinking about what platforms we might return to. Mm-hmm. I was just talking to some people and they were like, you know what? MySpace was not a bad platform. <laughs> And MySpace still exists. So there's there's conversations of people migrating back to these platforms that we've left by the wayside. You know, I'm uh, not going to lie. I opened up Black Planet today. <laughs> I was like, I wonder if my account I made from when I was 12 is still... See? Exactly. Exactly. So maybe some of these older platforms have something to teach us. Maybe there's something there. And also, are there things that we want to create and imagine? Are there new new places to go? And I hope that my research and, and the work that I'm doing next will be part of perhaps ushering in some different ideas about what our apps might look like in the future. I hope so too. I think it. I think it's. it sounds like such a... I think what I loved about this book too was just how you really paid homage to, you know, particularly what Tumblr did. Like, like I said to you before, like I really didn't, I didn't get that experience on Tumblr. I think it was because of my age. And I think it reminded me kind of to what you were saying earlier that at some point we did have a little level of, or there was, these things started out in a more intimate setting and what they initially wanted to do is very different than how they've kind of morphed. On, on, in a lot of spaces. So it was a very big reminder that it's, it is possible to have something different. It just feels like a lot of times with social media, it's like um, how before at one point cars didn't have seatbelts. We have no yes. seatbelts for this right now. We're kind of just like, it, it's a new thing. It's happening and everyone's just like doing it, but it's like driving people mentally not to not the best places, but we, we need to get that seatbelt. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately there's no, impetus or regulatory body that has the incentive to create the seatbelt mm-hmm. for the internet. Yeah. I have a question. Um, it's about something that got me really excited. Uh, I'm really curious about your work as a digital alchemist for the Octavia E. Butler Legacy Network. I am a huge Octavia E. Butler fan, and I just was personally curious about how you came to know her work and how you came to work with the organization and how you plan to help carry on her legacy. 
and also and also i wanted to know what your thoughts on the then the recent announcement of um kindred being developed into a show and um dawn lilith sprood being adapted as well yes okay one i'm so excited (laughs) to talk about octavia butler she is my fave so i first learned of octavia butler in college when i had the fortunate experience of getting to go to the yari yari pembari african women's writers festival in new york city and uh, the women's center at spelman paid for four of us to go and my good friend delane was like we have to go see octavia butler and i was like who is octavia butler and we went to this crowded room and octavia butler started talking in this just booming voice like i i can't her room her voice filled the whole room i was like who is this person how is i just she just had such a presence even as she was you know, awkward and all of those things, but so endearing. And as she was getting ready to leave, me and Delane walked out with her and Delane was like, your books are really scary. (laughs) And Octavia was like, yes, because the world is scary. And I was like, oh, wow, what (laughs) just happened here? And so I started reading. And the first thing I read was Parable of the Sower. Oh, my gosh. That's a big one to start with. Yes. And honestly, I'm so glad I did because, you know, I know Kindred is now, you know, in development. But Kindred is like my least favorite. Really? Yeah. I mean, I know why people like it. But I just feel like the, in terms of even thinking about slavery, I find so much in the Patternist series in terms of thinking about enslavement in ways that are really, you know, troubling and inspiring and breaking open some of the things that happened in ways that are really compelling to me. But uh, that whole experience got me to connect with Ayana Jameson. And what's funny is that I had a friend who was on a panel about Octavia Butler at the National Women's Studies Association Conference. And I took the picture of the panelists and then maybe Five years later, I'm talking to Ayana about Octavia Butler, and we realize that I am the one who took the picture of the panel that she organized for National Women's Studies mm-hmm. Association. Yeah. Okay. And Ayana Jameson started the Octavia Butler Legacy Project because she lived, she lives in Southern California mm-hmm. and wanted to go by Octavia's gravesite. And when she went, it was overgrown. They couldn't really direct her to the appropriate gravesite. They actually directed her to her mother's, to Octavia's mother's grave instead of Octavia Butler's grave. Octavia M. Butler is Octavia's mother, Octavia Margaret. 
And so it just opened up this idea that how is it that Octavia Butler has not been gone that long and already her gravesite is overgrown and neglected and forgotten. And so from that experience, Octavia Butler Legacy was born and I came on as the digital alchemist to help ensure that there is a digital record of Octavia's work. And so we've planned really wonderful events with the Huntington, which is where- Wait, Octavia- so were you guys part of the, the Huntington um, exhibit about- Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was actually the third person to get to look at Octavia Butler's papers in the archive. Yeah, which I highly recommend. I've Uh, only looked at them online, and I had um, one of her, the pages of her journal. It was like the lock screen on my phone for like a year. Yes, yes. So be to it. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And there are infinitely more pages like that that are in the archive the other brilliant thing about Octavia is that she knew who she was and she knew her work is valuable so she has report cards from when she was in elementary school she has like her drawings and her first stories when she was so young she has her journals from elementary school high school and beyond. So she's somebody who really understood the value of her mind and preserved all of that there for people who are looking. So I highly recommend uh, getting into the archive when you can. And Ayana loves being a tour guide and will show you all of the places where Octavia lived and went to school. So definitely reach out to Ayana Jameson through the Octavia Butler Legacy Network and schedule a, t- a tour on your ne- on your next trip to the Huntington. Well, so I actually live in Los Angeles and I've been meaning to go, um, but I I work I'm working in Winnipeg right now and I, I obviously COVID, so there's just been I just haven't had the opportunity. But obviously, living in Southern California. It's impossible not to think of her all yes. the time, especially like the parable books. Um, you know, when I'm on the highway and I imagine uh, just like the train of people walking. Absolutely. <laughs> and thinking of that train of people, yesterday was July 20th, which is the 12th birthday of Octavia's character. Lauren Olamina. So if we think of Lauren as 12, we're just a few years shy of the start of the parable books. And it's also so prescient because, of course, yesterday was also when Bezos went into space. So I'm just thinking about how Octavia, you know, she knew, she saw. Well, a lot of us believe that she was prophetic. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in the archive. It's all there. Um, well, we only have you for a little bit longer. So I would like to ask you one more question. And then do you have time for us to do some would you rathers? Would you like to that we do that with? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. It's super fun. But before we get to that, I want to ask you one last question just to kind of sum up um, this lovely conversation. 
Um, so with your book that you just wrote and, and came out with, what do you want readers, specifically Black women, queer, trans, non-binary, agender, gender variant people to take away from this body of work? Oh, thank you for that question. I just did a interview with Adrienne Marie Brown yesterday mm -hmm. for Politics and Prose Bookstore. And something she said was that this book is like a Trojan horse for transformative justice. And I was like, yes, that's what I want people to take away. <laughs> like, sure, I'm talking about misogynoir, but ultimately the real thing is the way that we relate to each other has to shift, especially mm -hmm. since the end of the Anthropocene is upon us. Like humans mm -hmm. are about to, I don't know. I think our time is numbered. <laughs> I think we can yeah. see that in so many ways. And it's, and even if our time is not numbered, this iteration of our lives is definitely on its way out. Yeah. So we're gonna have to be more careful with each other, uh, take more care of each other. And I hope that the book is a little bit of an offering into some of the ways that we experimented with that using the internet. Wow. I love that. That was a beautiful way to end off Thank this you. lovely <laughs> conversation. Okay. So now the fun would you rather questions? Um, so, Muna, do you want to go first? No. Okay. okay. <laughs> Fine, I'll go first. I don't know what to ask. <laughs> okay. So, would you rather have the ability to fly or the ability to make yourself invisible whenever you want? Oh, I mean, I feel like as a black woman, the invisibility is kind of on lock. So, <laughs> I'm going to go with flying. I love that. Okay, Muna, what would you pick? I would choose invisibility. Yeah? Yeah. I think I think it'd be I'm gonna go with fly too. I think it's because I'm a Scorpio. I just oh, also <laughs> what's your sign? We didn't even ask you that. I am a Gemini. Proud, oh, proud, proud. Okay. okay. Happy belated birthday. Yeah. Thank you. What's what's everybody's sign? Scorpio. Yes. Um, I'm a Taurus. Are you into like the full charts? Like, do you know your rise? Oh yeah. Oh, okay. I'm a little, I know everything. Yes. Okay. Fine. <laughs> um, so that. what's your moon and your rising? I am a Pisces moon and Ooh. a Libra rising. Oh, a lot of stuff. Oh, that's oh, interesting. <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a Taurus moon. Sorry. I'm a Taurus sun, Leo moon and cancer rising. Oh, a nice. Full messy. Okay. And I'm a Scorpio sun, Taurus moon, Gemini rising. Oh, love that. That's um, actually really cool. Yeah. You're, you have a fun mix, Muna. I like yours. Mm. Um, okay. Now you have to pick a would you rather question. Okay. So would you rather know when you die or how you will die? When? Really? Yeah. You don't think that wouldn't give you anxiety? No, I think it would be helpful. In terms of knowing okay. what needs to get done and what gets prioritized. I think I agree. I think if I knew how I died, I would just be paranoid. Like if I knew I died in a car crash, but say that car crash didn't happen until I was 82, every time I got in a car, I'd be paranoid. That's true. That's true. I Okay, I guess you guys kind of convinced me. I'm going to go with one too. Originally mine was how, but I'm going to go with one. 
I'm going to go with one. Okay. Um, okay. So would you rather go back to age five with everything you know now or know everything your future self will learn? Mm, I think future self. Yeah. I think future self. Yeah. Because I don't know, that would take the fun out of being five. <laughs> five was actually pretty cool. And knowing about massage and wire. That's something I really want for five-year-old me. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Mona, what about you? Um, I think I'd rather know everything that my future self will learn. I, I hesitate to go back to the past because it was so trash. And I don't know if like bringing myself knowledge would make it any better. I think it'd be a little bit more traumatic growing up if I know all the things I know now, but maybe it would make me like a like Yoda-esque person. You know, maybe I'd just be super wise at like five, you know, <laughs> be able to have all these answers. Um, okay. So do you want to do the last one, Muna? Um, sure. Would you rather know how the world began or how it will end? If the world even began or ended. Oh, I mean, I feel like I know how it's going to end. <laughs> um, those aren't the things that really keep me up at night I would say more I'd want to know why hmm. I think that would be my question hmm. why I feel like I'd, I'd want to know what the mechanics of the thing are anyway like it's like so is this a simulation or not <laughs> like Completely. yeah I never, that's I the never only thing that's kind that. of relevant it's not really about how it began or ended it's just like but who and how or yeah, why? 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 I like I've never thought about it that way. Wow. Um, okay, well mine would probably be began if I had to pick one. And then yeah. But now I'm 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 gonna steal your answer. That'll my official answer is your answer. <laughs> but if I had to pick in the question, it would be began. <laughs> but did the world even begin? I don't know. I just watched The Matrix, so I don't know. <laughs> 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 for the first time? No, 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 no. I rewatched okay. it for probably okay. the first time in like oh 10 God. years or something. Okay. I mean, when I was young, I saw it like a million times, which is so interesting too, because I'm watching this movie and I think the first one came out in like what, 2002 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And like, from what I know, I'm pretty sure the Wachowskis stole the concept from a black woman, right? That is the narrative. Yes. Yes. But even still, the way that they represented the Matrix in the world, it's pretty diverse. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really take that in as a kid. Hmm. And like sort of what those representations within and without the Matrix kind of meant. Mm -hmm. the why it, like, I don't know. I was just interacting with it very differently than I did when I was a kid. Interesting. I'll be very honest with both of you. I've never seen it. Girl... I have to. It's on my list, but I've never seen it. I'm admitting that on a on a platform that I probably will regret admitting it on. But <laughs> I'm gonna watch it. And every time people talk about it, I'm just like, lee, 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 lee. it's a great thing to binge. I know, I know the I know the premise. I get the references. You know what I mean? It's like in there. But anyways, um, Moya, thank you so so much for coming on the show with us um, and chatting with us. It was so lovely to have you. I learned so much. Oh, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, yeah, Munani. 
that was Last words. absolutely wonderful and exciting and inspiring. Yes, it was. Wow, I was so geeked. That was such a lovely conversation. She's so sweet and just the way that she articulates all of these ideas that seem complex, but really aren't. Like, I feel like her book and all of her concepts are so accessible. Yeah. And not going to lie, I was a bit intimidated going into this conversation, but I feel (laughs) a lot better about it now. Yeah, no, it was like I said, the, the women, the women's studies major in me was like geeking the entire time. When we found that out, I was just like, ah, like I, and just being able to speak with her so candidly. And the fact that she let us call her Moya was super cool. Yeah, it's pretty chill. Like, if I was a doctor, I would make sure that every single person. Yeah, it's, it's Dr. Chung. Thanks. That would be me. But um, aside from that, so amazing to chat with her. Thank you so much, uh, Moya, for that conversation and for sharing so much of your wisdom and peaceful energy. She was so calm. I loved that. I was like, wow, I am like, I I need (laughs) some serious therapy because the way I would be acting out of pocket with people. (laughs) (laughs) That was great. Um, Any patience. So any news from you, Luna? Absolutely none. Keisha, any okay. news for you or collective culture? Collective culture. So this month, we're going to have a lot of special fun content for to celebrate our five-year anniversary. Um, this podcast being one of them. Most of the stuff will be on socials, but take a keep an eye out for that. Oh, well, we have our column, our monthly column um, with Jasmine Beatty is writing it. Lovely piece. Go check it out. And then we have this episode. I have a lot of fun stuff I'm announcing this month. So if you want to check that out, just like check my Instagram and there'll be some things there. But and Otherwise, where can they find you on Instagram? My Instagram is at Keisha Chung, uh, K-E-E-S-H-A-C-H-U-N-J. And me, Muna, I am on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Muna Traore. That's at underscore M-O-U-N-A-T-R-A-O-R-E. I'll see you on the digital side. Yeah, guys. Thanks so much for joining us. And um, please keep an eye out for all the stuff that we got going on this month and it's such an honor to do this podcast with you Muna I love this Anna Muna thank you guys you're the best and as our producer you. guys we always talk about Anna you should we know gotta we gotta bring Anna to the front of the stage sometime yeah soon Anna's because... gonna Anna's gonna come guys you're gonna get to see the light that is Anna Anna's a vibe Anna's a vibe <laughs> but honestly guys like this is such an, an incredible I guess thing that we do together and I'm just so grateful for both of you and this episode was really special. So love you guys so much. Me too. Love you too. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Bye. Collective Culture Creative Conversations, the podcast, is made possible by Never Apart and Collective Culture. This podcast is produced and researched by Keisha Chung, Muna Traore, and Anna Okoto. It is edited by Anna Okoto. The music you're hearing was made by the lovely Villa Beats. And if you like what you heard today, please rate and subscribe to the show. We appreciate you and your support, and we can't wait to bring you back more episodes. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next month.